wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Today's episode contains some confronting and disturbing content. It also contains stories of hope and deliverance. My guest works to see young women and girls rescued from sex trafficking. He also produces a video podcast titled Liberty Unveiled. Links to his podcast and the anti-trafficking work are in the show notes of this episode at bleedingdaylight.net. Today, you'll hear stories of people who are truly kicking against the darkness until it bleeds daylight. On the surface, Tashua Tea Company is a small business selling quality tea, coffee and unique gift items. But there's something far more serious behind the scenes. Bradley Hopp is the co-founder of Tashua Tea Company, and he joins me today to talk about the reason behind the business. Brad, thanks for joining me on Bleeding Daylight. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What is the meaning behind the word Tashua, and how does that fit into what you're doing with a tea company? Okay, so <laughs> that's a great question. Um, Tashua is the Hebrew word for deliverance. The deliverance is very much what Tashua is all about because my business partner, Andrew, is a missionary in communist Asia behind the, the bamboo curtain. And he and the team rescue underage girls out of sex trafficking over there. So minor, minor girls. And they get the girls out of this horrific situation that they're in and into our rescue and rehab facility where we meet all of their needs. We take care of their food, shelter, clothing. We give them medical care. You know, we give them crisis pregnancy counseling. Uh, we teach them to read and write. We teach them to do different work crafts and skills, like making the braces and the tea and the coasters and and, and so on and so forth. And then what we do is we come alongside, and, and that's where I come into play, is we actually buy the products from the girls for whatever they're asking on them, and then half our profits are going back to the rescue facility. So it's a really a double whammy for the for the rescue house and for the girls. It's really all about deliverance. And really what you're doing is you're empowering them because you're not just saying, hey, I'll give you a handout. You're saying, here's an opportunity for you to do something for yourself. And, and it's actually paying off and showing them that there's a very different way. And that's that's the reason, you know, because living here in America, we have such a culture that is so entitled. And I'm a very much a firm believer. I grew up on a dairy farm. I grew up on a, you know, small scale farm here in Iowa. So I'm very much of the mindset that you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. So that's really the philosophy behind Tishua is to economically empower the girls. We, we basically work to give them a work ethic so that they know how to provide for themselves when they leave our rescue facility and they don't have that entitlement mentality. They, they, even though we're, you know, we're providing their needs while they're under our care. They have also learned to contribute to the household. They've learned to contribute to the needs of the household through doing dishes and through doing laundry and, and uh, working in the tea shop and, and so on and so forth. But then they're also making these crafts and these and, and stuff so that we can buy those from them so that they're seeing that they have skills and abilities that they can take into the marketplace. I want to explore a little bit more about what sex trafficking means, because I think it's a phrase that we've heard too often and we become desensitized to it. But before we go there, 
I would imagine mm-hmm. that for many, the idea that this is a sex trafficking that's happening in a communist Asian country absolutely fits our Western narrative. And we would say, well, certainly that sort of thing doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in countries like Australia no. or in the US. But is that the reality? No, the, by by far no. The US is actually the biggest consumer of pornography and US uh, tourists, and I'm really embarrassed to say this, but US tourists are some of the biggest consumers of the sex tourism industry throughout the world. And I used to deliver fire trucks, uh, million dollar, half million dollar fire trucks all over the country here in the US. And so my world was different than a typical truck driver because I didn't stay in truck parking lots. I would, you know, hotels every night and, and whatever. But still, my world crossed enough that you would see uh, truckers against trafficking and you would see different things. And, and uh, so it's very much a real problem. And actually the Asian country that my partner works in their technology for running brothels has been imported into the U S um, through massage parlors, through karaoke clubs, uh, through front businesses like that, that provide a cover for, you know, what looks like a legitimate business is actually a cover for the brothels. So it's actually a lot of the people in Western countries like ours that are actually fueling this kind of industry. Right. And and partially because of our opulence as far as our, our income, you know, we're not a third world country. We have expendable income. You know, and so that makes us purveyors of this kind of of garbage. You're talking about young girls and you're talking about minors. Mm -hmm. What sort of age are we looking at here? Uh, The youngest girl that my partner uh, and his team have had a hand in rescuing was 11 years old. And she was literally drunk off her behind. Uh, Real briefly, the way a rescue mission goes down is they go into the brothel. They have two people inside that are... um, not participating, but acting as patrons. It's a karaoke club. So you can go in and sing and spend the evening singing and stuff. And, and so they go in and spend the evening singing and then they wait till everybody else gets sauced or drunk. And then they start a ruckus. And then my partner and the team come in and, and cause even more of a ruckus and literally start grabbing, grabbing girls and, and picking them up and carrying them out of the building. And, um, he picked up this 11-year-old and carried her out. Now, we always make sure that we have uh, at least one of our female staff in the rescue van waiting so that she can explain to the girls what's going on, who we are, why we're there. And then they ask him, do you want to come with us? And 100% of them have said yes. It's a frightening scenario that you're setting out there. How are these girls originally lured into this traffic? Um, a lot of times it's either they are, uh, one of the girls, her, her parents went on vacation. She was staying with her uncle, her uncle, uh, abused, sexually abused her. And then he sold her off to his, uh, if I remember right, it was his sister. And then she, uh, pimped her out and then she ended up selling her or she might've sold her directly. I don't remember if she pimped her out and then sold her on or but anyway, so that was one of the scenarios. Um, a lot of them have aged out of the adoption system or the the orphanage system by 14 in this particular country. They they expect 14-year-old people to be able to survive on the streets by themselves at 14, uh, you know, which is being a father of six and having 14-year-olds, I 
that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, quite honestly, a lot of times it's either they were sold by a family member or they were, you know, out on the streets and somebody picked them up and, and offered them something that looked legitimate. And that's the biggest one. A lot of times they're, they're sold a bill of goods and, and told, Oh yeah, well, you know, we'll get you into this, whatever job. And, and that's not the case. You say you're providing all that these young girls need to return to society and to help them to heal. How do you help a young girl who's been treated in this way by probably hundreds of men? How do you teach Mm -hmm. them to trust again? And this is where my faith comes into play because we can't on our own. Um, We have have a book that was actually written by, um, I believe, the gentleman's from Australia, and uh, he's a, a Christian counselor. But he has written this book, and and that's kind of been the textbook for our house mothers. They get the girls into a safe environment, and obviously it takes time. But the girls begin to see the older girls that are there caring for each other and and helping each other in that stuff. You know, they go through devotions and, and Bible study, and, and eventually we don't force it down their throats. The girls have a choice. You know, I mentioned earlier that we get them crisis pregnancy counseling, and we don't force them to keep their babies. But three out of the four have that came to us pregnant have chosen to keep their babies, and so that combination that we have going on, it really the girls see what true Christianity is all about, and they they begin to see that hey, these people actually care about me, and they're endangering their own lives for me. It opens up that door for conversations, and it opens up the door for for us to be able to to share the gospel with them, but then also to help them to recover in, in deeper ways. Because, for example, I'll just give a short story here. One of the girls came to us, and um, she had been uh, pimped out for three years, if I remember right. She had not slept a solid night's sleep in in at least three years. Since she came to the rescue house, she had not slept uh, peacefully all night long. She would always wake up with night terrors and, and just horrific uh, dreams. 28 days in, she decided to put her faith in Jesus Christ, and she decided to become a Christian. And that night, she slept peacefully for the first time in over three years. She slept peacefully for nine hours that night. And she's not had any more night terrors. She's not had any more nightmares and, and the awful dreams and stuff. And, and it has really helped her to come to that wholeness that she needs because we're limited on what we can do. I mean, we're humans. There's spiritual healing that has to happen, and, and we're we're only able to give so much healing. But we can offer Christ, and, and that's where the true healing is found. You touched on the danger that's involved for the team that is doing these rescues. What sort of danger have they encountered? And is there an ongoing danger for them day to day? Yeah. First off, this particular country is cracking down on on Christians, for one. For two, one of the girls, the girls are free to leave if they want to. And so one of the girls had saved up her money. And she thought that her brothel owner was in love with her. So she went back to him because uh, obviously he told her he loved her. I mean, that was that's always part of the, the bill of goods. So she saved up her money and she went back to him. 
And she pretty quickly figured out that that was not the case when he beat her up and put her in the hospital for a week. But then when she uh, left the hospital, she went back to uh, one of Andrew's uh, Bible schools. The brothel owner followed her back there, and then he called some of his corrupt police buddies at the police department there in the area and um, had some of his his goons come along with him, too, and they were going to bust the place up. Well, we don't know who did this, but somebody higher up in the police department knows or must know something and actually called another police department and, and got Andrew uh, arrested for his own protection. And they got him out of there. They took him to a prison in this country, which is um, never a good thing, put him in jail for the day. And then that night at midnight, they took him out the back door in a, in an unmarked squad car. And he's thinking, you know, nothing leaves the back door of one of these jails. that ends well, especially at midnight. So they took him to a hotel and they put him up for, for 24 hours and, uh, and let everything blow over. After that, then they told him, okay, this is what's going on. So it's very real danger. And how do you stop something like this for the team that's on the ground there and for you who is totally immersed in this world day to day, how do you stop it from breaking you? Um, <laughs> you have to have a sense of humor. So growing up on the dairy farm, you know, my parents always had an expression because we went through the farm crisis through the early 80s where guys were losing their farms left and right. And uh, uh, my parents always said, you might as well laugh about it, otherwise you'll cry. And and that's one of those stupid sayings that really has stuck with me and held true. But more than that, much more than that is is just simply my faith in Christ and, and my belief in Christianity and, and what what God has done for me, it would be very easy to get discouraged when you're when you're going up against such wicked and such evil. You really have to have that solid foundation, otherwise it will, because you're looking at the dregs of humanity. There's many days that even as a Christian, you'd rather just throat punch somebody and <laughs> just you know you, you hear these stories and you're just like, if I could get my hands around their neck and ring it, I would. You know, and I know the Father God feels that same way too, but I also know the ter- terrific testimonies that happen when brothel owners become Christians. We've had several brothel owners become Christians over the last couple of years, and to see the transformation there really at the same time gives you hope too, because you see guys that ha- that are like, and then in you know, just name some of famous American mobsters like John Gotti and Al Capone. I mean, some of the most famous uh, mobsters in the world. These guys are Asian tongue. And as part of the mafia and part of the tongue, they're not guys to be messed with. So as guys that should not be messed with, when they come to Christ and they become Christians, and they are willing to put their own lives on the line to see these girls rescued and set free, that's where you begin to to grab a hold of that hope that really is just such an astounding thing. I imagine having some of those former brothel owners on board would give even more insight into to ways to rescue the young girls that you're mm-hmm. seeking to save and, and, right. and see healing for. One of the, the very first guy or the very first brothel owner that Andrew led to the Lord was kind of an interesting situation Andrew had a, a an American restaurant in this particular town. He put an ad in the newspaper for, or put an ad out for, 
for some waitress help for the restaurant. And he had a young lady apply on a Wednesday. And he said, come back on Saturday and I'll, I'll give you an interview at nine o'clock. Nine o'clock came and went and it was noon before she showed up. And he was like, I'm not hiring this girl. And he felt like God said, no, I want you to hire her. So he, he did reluctantly, but he did. And uh, she brought a friend of hers on and they ended up both becoming Christians. And then they both had a heart to see the girls be rescued out of the brothels and to see these brothel owners come to Christ. And, and so they, they started studying and they started taking gifts into the girls and into the brothel owners because in this Asian country relationship is extremely important. Andrew, uh, his wife had actually helped this, the Christian psychologist that I talked about earlier. She had helped him translate his book into this Asian language. So they had a copy of it and, and they, they gave it to these two girls and they started studying. And then they said to this brothel owner, they said, do you want to meet an American that speaks your language? And he said, well, heck, I've never met an American, let alone one that actually speaks my language. Sure. So Andrew sat down with the guy and uh, they got to talking and, and Andrew shared the gospel. And this guy, as I said, he was Tong. I mean, he was mafia. And when he ran into Christ, it was such an encounter that he set all of his girls free, uh, 20 girls free, and uh, gave them all severance packages, gave them all bus tickets back to their home villages, and then had a fund that he had uh, money, you know, $45,000 or $48,000 that he had made off of the girls set aside in a, in a fund for a matching fund to uh, raise money for the rescue house and stuff. He's actually helped us because he still knows all the boys in the club, so to speak. And so he's actually helped us get the layouts of the buildings, do different things, and has has really been instrumental in also introducing Andrew to other brothel owners and stuff. And, for example, in January of this year, we had a rescue of eight more girls. The way that one went down was really interesting because a year earlier, Andrew had sat down with a brothel owner uh, that he had been introduced to and had shared the gospel with the guy. The guy didn't want to hear anything about it. He was like, you know, I'm making too much money and I don't, you know, I really don't care. Fast forward to this year, January 22nd, uh, Andrew and some of his Bible students are praying one morning and they feel like, you know, like the Holy Spirit says, I want you to go north of town. And Andrew's like, Lord, I don't know anybody north of town. So he's like, all right, I guess we'll go. You know, so the six of them or seven of them piled into his, his SUV and they headed north of town and they drove 50 miles out into the country on the tollway. As they were driving along, one of the Bible students speaks up and says, Hey, I think we're supposed to turn on this side road. So they turned on the side road. And when they turned there, they went 15 miles on that road, paralleling the tollway. They got up the road 15 miles. And one of the other ones speaks up and says, Hey, I think we're supposed to turn on this or turn around and go back to that, that little gravel two track and go down that road. And, and so they followed that for three miles out into the middle of the country, out in the middle of nowhere. And they pulled up in front of this really ornate gate. This 90 year old gentleman comes walking out and he looks at him and says, what's your business here? You know, real gruffly. And Andrew's trying to figure out what the heck to tell the guy. Well, about that time, the guy's son-in-law walks out of the house. He sees Andrew, he stops dead in his tracks. And he's like, how the heck did you find me here? And Andrew looks at him and goes, I know I should know you from somewhere, but I don't know how. And the guy says, well, you met me in my office a year ago. And Andrew's like, oh, yeah. 
you're the brothel. You know, it clicked on his head that he's like the brothel owner that I talked to a year ago. That guy became a Christian. His in-laws became Christians. They all received their first Bibles that night. They all got baptized and they all, and he set all of his girls free. So we rescued eight more that night just from him meeting Christ. You're talking about releasing young girls from sex trafficking, but you're also releasing some of those brothel owners. I imagine that they would have enormous amount of shame once they come face to face with what it is that they've been doing. They do, but at the same time, a friend of mine and I were talking about this the other day, that sin always carries consequences. You know, you look at the story of the woman at the well, or the woman caught in the act of adultery, rather, and she was brought brought before Jesus, and all the Jewish leaders are saying stoner and, and stuff. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, he stands up, and he says, whoever's without sin casts the first stone. And then he goes back to writing in the dirt. And slowly, one by one, they stop, and they drop their stones, and then they walk away. And something that's interesting here is, legally, under the Jewish Old Testament law, she should have been stoned. But they failed to fulfill the law because they didn't bring two or three witnesses along, and they didn't bring the man along. If they caught her in the act of adultery, they should have brought him along. And so Jesus, knowing this, knows that he can't justly have a case because he didn't have two or three witnesses, and he doesn't have the man. And so he goes and and throws this out at them, and they all walk away. Now, as I said to my friend the other day, if she would have been pregnant, Jesus looked at her and he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say be free of the consequences of your sin. He said, go, go and sin no more. If she would have been pregnant, she would have been obliged under his, his current command, go and sin no more. She would have been obliged to keep that baby. She would not have been free from the consequences necessarily of that sin. Well, you know, oftentimes we can, you know, these brothel owners, they can set the girls free, but they're still going to have that remorse. They're free from the guilt. They're free from the condemnation. You know, he who said, he, he who Christ sets is free indeed. So they would have been free from that guilt and that condemnation, but they're still going to have that remorse, that sorrow from that. And it's going to be a godly thing that's going to keep them from doing it again. It's not always an unhealthy thing to have that remorse because it keeps us from doing it again. You've mentioned that some of the girls have been stolen away from their families. Some of them, Mm -hmm. their their families have actually been involved. But for those girls Mm -hmm. who have been stolen from their families, uh, is there opportunity for them to to reunite? And and what's been some of the results of that? I don't know any of the stories of the 20 girls that were set free from the first brothel owner. I don't believe that any of the girls have gone back to that situation because a lot of times if they do go back to that situation – they would end up back in in that same situation, you know, they would have ended up back up in the same uh, situation that oftentimes that got them there in the first place. In other words, there was some reason that they ended up getting trafficked and to send them back into either their village or whatever would be just putting them back into the hands of the, of the original sellers, so to speak, the kidnappers in the first place. And so oftentimes it's safer for us to keep them, you know, they have the right to go back if they want to. 
as I said, the one girl, she saved up her money from, from selling the products to us. And she used that money to go back to her, her brothel owner because she thought he was in love with her. So they have the freedom to go back if they want to. None of them have chosen to. One of the young ladies that actually won't talk about her parents, won't talk about how she came to be trafficked, won't talk about any of that stuff. She actually learned to read or write. She learned to do her math. She learned past all of her high school classes. She got all caught up. She uh, took her insurance classes and passed her insurance boards and is now, uh, as of last summer, living in her own place and, and actually is a licensed insurance agent. It's an incredible story to hear someone going from being trapped into a, an opportunity like that, to, to be running themselves in, the, in their own business and to, to be doing so well in life. It, it must give you great encouragement to keep doing what you're doing. It really does. Because there's a lot of times where when you're doing stuff like this, especially when you're when you're rescuing girls from just absolute hell on earth, as much as I talk about Christianity, there's forces on the other side that don't don't want to see what we're doing done. You know, they do um try to discourage you and, and dissuade you from doing what you're doing. So um yeah, it makes it a challenge some days, but but you look at those stories and you're like, you know what? This actually brings up a really good story that I was reminded of here a couple of weeks ago, and it really kind of summarizes uh, Teshua. And we actually have some bracelets that I, I hadn't made this connection until just a couple of weeks ago. But we have some bracelets that have starfish on them. That, that the girls have made. And the story goes that this little boy is standing on the beach and, and it's low tide. And there's all these thousands and thousands and thousands of starfish all down the beach. They're all trapped because it's low tide. And uh, this elderly gentleman comes up and he's standing there on the shore with this little boy. And, and he's watching the little boy throw the starfish back. And he goes, you know, what are you doing, son? And he goes, I'm, I'm throwing the starfish back because otherwise I'll die. And the the elderly gentleman looks at him and goes, son, you're not going to be able to rescue all of them. You know, you might as well just quit. You might, you're not going to be able to rescue all of them. And uh, you're not going to make a difference. And uh, the little boy stands there and thinks about it for a second. And he reaches down and picks up a starfish and chucks it back into the ocean. And he goes, I made a difference for that one. And that's the thing. You know, there's. I was I was looking at some trafficking numbers tonight before we came on the air, and nearly more, nearly four million adults and one million children are victims of sex trafficking, and seven out of ten of them are exploited in Asia and the Pacific region. It's a nine ninety seven or ninety nine billion dollar a year industry. It's a huge industry, and while we may not be able to get to all of them. We can make the difference in one or two or five or 20 or, or 40 or 80. We can make the difference in their lives. So it really means a lot to me to be able to make that difference, even just a few people's lives. I was going to ask about the, the numbers and the scope of the problem, and you, you've outlined that, and it is shocking. But I do wonder sometimes, and I remember once being in India and in a street where there were were hundreds of brothels, and they estimated between twelve and and uh, fifteen thousand girls being prostituted in that street. And my mind started to turn to the amount of guys that that each 
girl sees each day and therefore continuing to, to, to try and do the maths in my head and come to terms with the enormous number of people that are using these terrible, terrible services. It, it's a huge problem. And, you know, this is this brings up something that on our podcast, Liberty Unveiled, we were talking about uh, on Monday when we were recording, and Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested during the last 30 days. Uh, she's Jeffrey Epstein's uh, girlfriend and accomplice, uh, and she has uh, supposedly has proof, well, she does have proof, of a global elite pedophile and human trafficking ring. In the UK, there was a massive uh, global pedophile ring bust. 31 children were rescued and 700 suspects are being investigated. Germany is investigating 30,000 potential suspects in a pedophile ring, 116 trafficker arrests, and 1,489 victims were rescued. Florida had uh, six human traffickers busted and five women rescued. Pennsylvania had eight men arrested as part of a trafficking ring. Spain had uh, 12 arrests and 1,000 victims rescued. Uh, Italy had 10 arrested in a trafficking ring. Baltimore uh, businessman paid $90,000 to sex trafficking operation. The feds charged. There was a, a man in California was arrested for operating a $21 million international uh, sex trafficking website. Bangladesh, 52 were arrested in a tra uh, trafficking ring. Scotland, dozens of arrests and 18 rescued. Malaysia had 18 police officers and army officials arrested for uh, human trafficking. It's amazing. Uh, a French man was arrested for raping 300-plus young girls. India, 67 rescued out of trafficking there. So, I mean, I just skipped over several of them, quite a few of them, actually. And so the trafficking numbers are just outrageous. When we start to try and think through these numbers and see the size of this problem, and we can see that most of the time it is fueled by a desire, uh, especially by men who have a desire to, to act in a way that they should not be acting and that is absolutely evil, there would be some who would see prostitution, would see pornography as something that as long as the, the participants are willing, it's okay. What would you say to that? That's a major, major, major misnomer because oftentimes men are looking at pornography and they think that the, the girls are willing, but oftentimes they're not. I think they said like 70% or higher are actually trafficking victims. And what you're seeing looks like they're willing participants, but they're really not. And oftentimes the reason they look like they're willing participants is because they've either been threatened with death or their family has been threatened, or they're, they're being told if you don't participate and you don't act the way we want you to act, your family will be killed. There's much in the way of coercion and blackmail. And, and so, you know, when, when men think that, that, that all this is all just, you know, fun and games and it's, and nobody's really being hurt. That's not the, really the case. That's not really the truth. There is no choice. If, if you are told either do this or you'll be executed or do this or your family will be hurt and you've already been raped and you've already been, see something that happens. And if you look at the method for most all of the traffickers, when they're grooming somebody, 
they will first rape them. And, and what that does psychologically to the person is it breaks down their, uh, if you talk to trafficking victims, they'll, they'll always say after I was raped, I felt like I was worth nothing. And it causes psychological and, and spiritual damage to them. And so then when their families are threatened and stuff, they still care for their families and they're like, I'm not worth anything anyway. So therefore I might as well, you know, I'm, I'll, to save my family, I'll, I'll do what I'm told. It's a very dark world, and sometimes we just have to call things for, for what they are. We're talking about uh, an industry, so to speak. We're talking about sex work, and we use all these phrases. But obviously, if women are being coerced in any way to participate, and especially for these young girls, that's not sex work. That's not an industry. That's, as you say, rape. That's, that's pure and simple rape. And this is where I get really frustrated and really, yeah, I suppose angry would be the right word uh, with the, I'll try to be nice, the numbskulls in, in Holland and, and in Northern Europe that are, that are protesting for uh, sex workers' rights and stuff like that. If you go back to the really the basis of all of this, even the ones that, that, are older and say they're there willingly, I will guarantee that if you look back through their past, they were molested when they were a child. And so if they were molested as a child, even though they think they're there willingly now, they didn't start out there willingly. They were molested. They were raped when they were a child. There has been some kind of childhood traumatic damage done to these children like my partner Andrew is rescuing where they're, they're still underage and they're minors or where they say they're willingly in the industry um, as adults or whatever. I don't imagine that that point of view makes you very popular in some circles. No, but you know what? I, <laughs> I'm a farm kid from Iowa and I really don't care. <laughs> you know, it, 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 <laughs> I'm not trying to be crass, but it's, you know what? I care more about, I care more about the people that we're rescuing and I care more about the people that are being damaged than I do about me being popular or anything else. When you damage a child, you're causing things to be set in motion. And Jesus said, he took this, this approach to it. When you damage one of these children, he said, when you, when you uh, cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you if you'd had a millstone tied around your neck and you've been tossed into the ocean. He doesn't take to it kindly. It, it causes a, a, a string of damage in their lives. But then what it does is it also causes them to go out and become abusers later a lot of times. And it perpetuates, you know, Andrew has an expression and, and it's really true. Hurting people hurt people. That's the reason we take the approach of, of getting them healed and, and completely made whole before we set them back out into the, into the world on their own. I'm wondering if someone is listening today and thinking, this is something I need to get behind. This is something I need to act on. How can they contact you and make a difference? 
to make it easy on everybody, I have two URLs for our website. I have teshuatea.com, which is T-E-S-H-U-A-H-T-E-A.com. But the easier one is deliverancetea.com. I just decided after two years that it would be probably smart to make it a little bit easier on people. So deliverancetea.com is an easy way to find us on or on deliverance uh, tea or tissue tea.com. They can go to the donate page and under the donate page, we have um, a, a direct link, a PayPal link to the rescue house. So when somebody makes a donation there, uh, it does not go through me. It does not go through the, the, the business side of everything. It goes direct to the rescue facility and helps us take care of the girls because it costs a lot of money. A typical rescue mission is about $500, but aftercare or the initial aftercare, getting them new clothes, uh, medical care, all the things that they need, all the toiletries, all that stuff, um, because they literally come to us with the clothes on their back and nothing else. And so we get them all new clothes, toiletries, medical care. That costs about $2,000. But then on a monthly basis, Per girl that's in our rescue facility, it costs us uh, $16.67 a day per girl. Well, what I haven't told you about is we had a brothel owner reach out, and he's like, my brothel's been shut down because of COVID, and I've been housing and caring for the girls for the last six months, and I can't keep doing it. And I heard about you guys, and so here's my 13 girls. So we now have 41 girls and two female staff in our in our rescue house. We're in the process of finding a second one because obviously a 2,300 square foot house is too small. Uh, so we need to expand, get more staff. So when somebody makes a donation, that helps us defray the costs of of that because it costs right now with 41 girls, it's closer to 21 or 22 thousand dollars a month that it costs us to care for everything. But a donation is 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 a uh, a great way to get behind what we're doing. And we'll include links to the website in the show notes, so you can check that out at bleedingdaylight.net. You can find all the information there. Brad, it's been wonderful to speak to you, speaking about some some very dark things, but but the light is starting to, to shine through in, in so many of those areas. We thank you for the work that you are doing, and thank you for your time here today. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.